This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Kenneth, it looks like you've got a question on the tip of your tongue over there. <laughs> you know, I have so many questions. The one thing that, that stuck into my mind last night, and it's still stuck there, and I want you to explain it to me. Okay. What is synthetic fraud? Is it something that's manufactured that's fake? Ah. So what is synthetic fraud? You know, it's it's funny you would mention that because a lot of banks have trouble even defining what synthetic fraud is or synthetic identity theft. Let's call it that. A lot of banks have trouble identifying what that is. So you talk to different banks and they'll have a different definition as to what that is. My definition of synthetic identity fraud is using real personal identifying information, so PII, using real personal identifying information to create a new credit report in the bureau system. Now that is a very broad definition, okay? It's a little bit easier if I tell you how it actually works. Okay. Okay. So in 2011, the Social Security Administration, they randomized Social Security numbers. Now they did that to combat identity theft, a specific type of identity theft. Because if you're issued a Social Security number prior to 2011, if I know the last four of those numbers, if I know the year you're born and the state you're born in, it's pretty easy for me to get the first five. And the first three are generally... Generally the, the state. The state. The next two are, are sort of kind of maybe the, the year of issuance of the year you were born, okay? And then the last four are the, the kind of a random type thing, all right? But there's algorithms that will determine that for you if you know the last four, you know the year of birth and the state of birth. So the Social Security Administration, they randomized those numbers. It stopped that identity theft cold in its tracks, killed it completely at that point. The problem is that whatever genius decided they were going to randomize the numbers, they didn't realize that it now allows criminals to fabricate social security numbers or to use a child's social security number to create brand new credit reports in the credit bureau system. All right, so the way it works... Typically, right now, right now, because it's, we're, in, we're in this midst of it changing for cyber criminals right now. But the way it works right now is a criminal goes on the dark web. He buys a child's social security number. So for $25, and here's the thing, it used to be $2. But now it's $25 is what child, children's IDs are being sold for. So for $25, you get the kid's name, social security number, date of birth, mother's maiden name, and place of birth. The only thing you need is just the social. That's all you want. So you take the social, you put any name to it, an adult date of birth, an address, a phone number, you apply for credit. Now, here's the thing. The credit bureaus don't know you exist until you tell them you exist. Right. 
So if they've never, never seen the data before that's coming in on that application, that application will be denied. But when it's denied, it actually creates a credit report in the credit bureau system with that synthetic information. So now that synthetic, that fake person is in the credit bureau system. All right. Now the game is to pump the credit score up of that synthetic identity to a point where you can apply for credit, cash out, make a lot of money. All right. So the way you do that, a lot of people think that when you, when you pull a credit report, the only thing you pull is just the credit report. And that's not true. When a credit report is pulled, they're also looking for information that connects the address to the applicant. So it's, they look at open source intelligence is what they look at. So the first stop for a criminal to commit this type of fraud is he goes to a service like listyourself.net. He inputs the synthetics information in there. It's a free white pages listing service. Inputs the information in there. That way, a couple weeks later, that address has started to be related to that synthetic person. Starts to receive spam mail, all this other stuff. At the same time, he'll open up rewards cards in the synthetic's name. You know, grocery, pharmacy, airline, that type of stuff. That way, all those Google crawlers out there, when they're scraping data, they scrape that synthetic name in relation to the address as well. So it takes care of all open source intelligence right there. Now, what you usually do... What's being done 49% of the time right now in the United States in order to pump up that credit score in the United States, we have this thing called credit piggybacking. It's beautiful. I mean, it's legal. It's, it's a beautiful thing. What is it? So what it is, say you've got a child, all right? And you as the adult, the parent, you've got stellar credit. You know, you've got that 800 score. You can get anything on, on the face of the earth that you want. All right. Your kid, though, your kid doesn't have squat. But you don't want your kid to have to suffer. You want your kid to have a nice little hand up to start his or her credit life. So what you can do is you can put them on as an authorized user of one of your credit cards. Now, when you do that, they don't get access to the card. It doesn't affect your credit score whatsoever. It doesn't mess with your credit score. But that card's history now becomes the authorized user's history. So they get this credit boost all of a sudden. That whole history of that card. So if the debt ratio is good enough, the balance is high enough, the card's been active long enough, that, that your child can go from a zero score up to seven, 750 or higher in the course of 30, 45 days. Well, guess what? You can do that same thing with synthetic profiles. The people don't exist, but they exist in the credit bureau system. You can add them on to cards as authorized users. That card's history then becomes a synthetic profile's history, pumps the credit score up to that high 700-plus level. At that point, you've got a 700-plus score, but it has, a bit, it has an extra benefit as well. What's that? So I've set up a synthetic profile, all right? I've got that, that credit report is brand new. That credit report may only be a week or two weeks old. That hurts me as a criminal. I need that credit report to look older. Well, by adding an authorized user trade line onto the credit report of the synthetic, however old the credit card is that I add onto that, that account, that becomes the age of the credit report for the synthetic as well. So all of a sudden, even though I opened up the synthetic credit report a week ago, if I add a card on that's 10 years old, that makes the synthetic's credit report 
10 years old. Yeah, got to love that. How do they how are they able to catch that? Ah, how are they able to catch that? Well, considering that the statistics, 80% of all new account fraud is synthetic. We've got $50 billion worth of losses. 20% of all credit card charge-offs are from synthetic fraud. And 5% of all credit card debt is from synthetic fraud. I would say they're not catching it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that would be my response. So, and that, that credit piggybacking is... That is the primary way. It's 49% of the way this stuff's going right now. Now, the Social Security Administration, they're getting ready to allow merchants and creditors access to the Social Security database so you can see if it's a child's Social Security number that's applying. So we're not, right now we're seeing criminals that are saying, well, you know what? We don't have to use children's Social Security numbers. We can use prisoners' Social Security numbers. We can use I-10s. I-10s, yeah. Individual tax identification numbers. So you get an immigrant that comes over here to work. When he or she goes back home, that I-10 that's issued to them here, it's still active. They're back in their normal country, but the I-10 can still be used here to commit synthetic fraud. So there was a white paper issued by the federal government a few months back. Basically, it said, guess what? Synthetic fraud, not going anywhere anytime soon. So what you've got, and banks have gotten much better. They have. Well, I was one of the first people to start talking about synthetic fraud. One of the first people also to start talking about it is the person that I'm interviewing today, Jesse Gossman. He's a detective down in South Florida. He was one of the first individuals to really get a handle on synthetic fraud, to really see it in operation, to, to understand how it works, everything else. So we're talking to him today about that. But there's... What people don't understand is that criminals are very good about information gathering. They anticipate the trends. They anticipate the security that's coming in to stop them. So we're already seeing criminals changing the way that they're committing this type of fraud. They're mo- they're starting to migrate away from children's identities into prisoners' identities or I-10s. Or there's a report in Forbes that says 36% of all Americans don't even have a credit score. So you can use any of those. So they're starting to migrate to those types of people. They're starting to, instead of using authorized trade lines, they're starting to open up companies or take over companies that report directly to credit bureau systems or registering themselves as a data furnisher to report to a credit bureau system. So it, you've got this, these whole techniques that are going in here, and you're talking about crimes that one synthetic profile can earn a criminal a, a few hundred thousand dollars, potentially, if they know how to properly use it. So, of course, today we're talking about synthetic fraud, and we've got the outstanding Jesse Gossman to help us out with that. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we navigate the dark waters of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Season one of Anglerfish tells the story of my rise and fall as the original internet godfather, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to now being focused on protecting people from the type of person I used to be. This second season of the Anglerfish Podcast dives into the deepest, darkest waters of our online lives. We'll be discussing fraud and financial cybercrime, sure, 
But also human trafficking, drugs, cyberbullying, fake news, extremist groups, nation-state attacks, child pornography, and more. Anglerfish believes shedding light on the darkest parts of the Internet helps us to better understand the problems and find solutions instead of living in a world of fear. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. My name is Jesse Gossman. So uh, full time, I'm a, I'm a police detective uh, dealing solely in economic crimes and fraud. And I've been there for about 13 years. I work out of South Florida, uh, which I'm sure, as you know, is one of the hot spots uh, for fraud and, and economic crimes around well, the country. And as a matter of fact, I, I can't say that I'm not somewhat responsible for some of that because I know I committed a lot of fraud down in South Florida as well. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're certainly not alone. No, uh, I'm, I'm not. But, uh, yeah, so I, I've been doing that for, for quite a while. And, you know, in doing that, I really developed a passion for uh, investigating fraud and, and really trying to learn as much about it as I can because it is an ever-changing subject. And, and unlike a lot of the other uh, disciplines of investigation where, you know, you, you have a, a typical pattern of, of what the crime is, how it occurred and how it's concealed. When it comes to fraud, it's, it's anyone's guess because fraud is changing every day and the bad guys are getting smarter and finding ways to defeat us. Um, so it is definitely um, interesting and, you know, sometimes overwhelming to try and stay abreast of the latest trends and, and how really things are, are, are happening. So um, in addition to that, you know, that, that passion led me to um, go ahead and start a, a, my own consulting practice called Bottom Line Fraud, where I do consulting with small businesses on fraud prevention, um, specifically including synthetic identities. Sure. So and, let me ask you on that. So you, you consult small businesses. What do you see as the largest problem small businesses have right now as far as fraud goes? So right now, when you're when you're talking about small businesses, it's it's um, just online channels and dealing with credit card fraud. Uh, with the the massive amount of data breaches we have today, it's it's um, an, an ever growing and, and difficult problem to solve. And then in addition to that, if we're speaking uh, directly about synthetic identities that's really becoming an issue for the auto industry. And that's more the financial institutions, which I've done some work with as well. Yeah. And I'll tell you my, my view on that or my experience rather. So I bought my first legal vehicle. I bought two of them last year. The first time I've ever purchased a vehicle with legal money. <laughs> and, uh, I was in, uh, you know, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, but I bought a Ford F-150. So I drove over to, uh, to Atlanta to pick it up uh, simply because they didn't have the, the one I wanted here. 
and I was talking to the Ford dealer and that Ford dealer over there also, they have a, a Bentley dealership in Atlanta. And I started talking about the types of fraud and I mentioned synthetic fraud and I was like, Hey, are you guys seeing synthetic fraud? And the guy looks at me kind of funny and I just keep talking about it. And he finally, he was like, uh, who are you? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I showed my business card and we pull up the website and everything. He's like, Oh man, that's outstanding. He said, uh, you know, we've got a Bentley dealership that got hit by six, a thief came in and they stole six Bentleys over like an eight month span of time. And I'm like six Bentleys. And he's like, yeah. And he's, and I was like, did you get them back? And he's like, hell no, we didn't get them back. He said, evidently they're putting them on these container tr uh, containers yeah. overseas in the middle East. And, uh, yeah. You know, my first thought was, so, shit, it took you, it took you six of them. <laughs> to, no, to, I tell you what, and that is not, that is not an uncommon story. I mean, really? just, just, oh, oh my God, no. So we deal with it all the time. And, and really you have, you know, I think there's, there's been a resurgence in, in auto theft. You know, I, I would love to see the actual numbers on that. Um, sure. Unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of these, um, and why in, in the article I did for fraud magazine, you know, I titled it. Uh, the synthetic ID you don't see because right. with a lot of these uh, lenders and, and these financial institutions, they never get counted as fraud because what will happen is a lot of these organized groups that are doing this, they know, and, I, and I've, I've learned this from experience in, in speaking with these people, they know don't make a first payment default. Some of them won't make a, uh, the first three payment defaults because right. they know as long as they do that, it's going to go to the bank and the bank is going to look at it as a typical default and not necessarily chalk it up to fraud. So oh. that never goes, never goes in as a, as a stolen car and a stolen vehicle. You know, it's, it's, and before I, I want, I want to follow up on that. But one thing I wanted to mention is that other than the work you do in law enforcement and the consulting, you've just got this, you've got a YouTube channel as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually starting at this week. It's called the fraud detective. And it's my goal there to bring everybody stories straight from the front lines of financial crimes. So that is outstanding. Yeah. And tend to kind of, it, it's really going to be designed for uh, civilian fraud investigators, business owners, and even other law enforcement, because I know when I came in and, and truly trying to learn the tricks of the trade and, mm -hmm. and trying to stay abreast of what's going on, it's very difficult. And you end up uh, like I, I did a lot of times I end up going to YouTube and I'm watching the bad guy channels or I'm going sure. on these other other channels to see what the bad guys are doing. But obviously um, when it comes to investing, you know, investigating those things and trying to build a case that's worthy of criminal prosecution, we have a lot of other barriers and obstacles and, and a ton of frustrations when it comes to getting what we really need. So I really want to be able to convey that to other law enforcement that may be new into the field and kind of share those stories to, to assist in that fight against fraud. You know, that, that really is outstanding. And I'll, I just want the audience to know, I didn't even know about your YouTube channel until you messaged me just prior to us starting the recording this morning. And what you're saying about that, I cannot recommend enough for people of every demographic, every business, every vertical out there to go and watch The Fraud Detective. If there's anyone, and you know, we, t we spoke about this before we started recording, but you were one of the first people to talk about synthetic identity fraud. And, and as far as I'm concerned, Jesse, you are really on the front line of a lot of this stuff. Plus the, the law enforcement experience that you've had. Oh my. I mean, it, it, you'd be insane not to listen to what you've got to say. So I advise everyone to go to the fraud detective, YouTube, Jesse Gossman. You cannot beat the knowledge that this guy has. So please tune into that. Um, going back to 
automobiles since, since that's kind of the path we got on here. I read an article, hell, this is three days ago. I think it was in Forbes, but uh, they were this, this um, automobile bill dealer. I think he was in, I think he was in Dallas, but he was talking about exactly what you're talking about. The amount of fraud or the, the stolen vehicles that are coming in. He says that he said that over a year that his dealership gets about 1.5 million in stolen vehicles. That, that people come in with fake driver's licenses, synthetic identities, and they, they steal these vehicles. He says of the, those 1.5 million in vehicles, about 50% of them are recovered. And of the 50% that are recovered, about 50% of them are totaled. <laughs> so is, is that common where you are too, that those types of numbers and everything, or is it even worse? Yeah. You know, as far as, as, the, the numbers on what's recovered, it's hard for me to say without, you know, having all the data in front of me, but I can tell you just from my experience, mm -hmm. um, you know, these, a lot of these dealerships, uh, they're, they're looking at three cars, maybe a month, four cars, maybe a month that we know about oh, that are coming out. And this is just in my local jurisdiction where I, you know, where I work. Um, and so for a, a single dealership, we're looking at, we're looking at three cars per month. So that's 36 cars a year. And you know what I'm going to do? I've, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. So I'm, I'm assuming that these guys aren't going in and picking up the base level Hyundais. So. Uh, you know, and there really is. So there's, there's definitely a high end market. And I'll tell you one of the other things that, that's very interesting is um, there is a whole kind of culture uh, behind donk racing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I was No, I'm not. Um, but there is, it's kind of uh, 1970s, 1980s mm -hmm. uh, cars, and they do a lot of racing with them. And we found a, a very strong tie-in with that culture where they are doing a lot of engine work on these vehicles. So what they'll ah. do is they will go out and get, you know, one of the top-of-the-line high-performance vehicles. Sure. Um, and then they just are, are parting it. You know, they're taking out the engines, they're putting them into these other vehicles, um, and they're able to get, you know, a, a seventy, eighty thousand dollar car, uh, take the parts they want from it, and the rest is scrapped. And so that's one way they're they're converting these oh, vehicles. Wow. Those are the ones for the for the high end performance vehicles. But then in addition to that, you also have this entire industry of getting high end luxury vehicles mm -hmm. and either shipping them overseas, like you already mentioned, or the other common thing that they'll do is put them out on. Toro, which is in essence, it's like an application to rent out the vehicle oh, and make money off of it. Yeah. So, so they're, so they're going and getting the BMW or whatever the hell that is and they're signing it up to Toro. So it's yeah. like a business with absolutely no investment at all there. Absolutely. And, you oh, know, the, it's, it's a business where the entirety of the risk is placed solely on the financial institution. And, and that's something that another way that it becomes interesting and, and it becomes concealed is that you know, if they're successful in renting this vehicle out on Toro, they're going to make their payments. Sure. Right? But as soon as uh, something goes bad, well, they're not, they're not vested in it. They have no, they have no real uh, interest in keeping things going. You know, they can just walk away and the bank will eat all the losses. Yeah. So it's, and I, I pulled it up on the calculator. So if we're doing, if a dealership loses 36 cars at a minimum of 50 K per car, that's 1.8 million is what we're looking at. So, I mean, that's a huge amount of money and you're absolutely right. I mean, just from my criminal point of view, if I were one of these individuals getting a vehicle, you're, you're right. I mean, I would wear it out. 
If the payments are being made for me through something like Toro or something like that, I would absolutely wear the vehicle out. The first thing that goes wrong with it, I'm not worried about it because it's not in my name. So I would just park it someplace, let somebody find it, let it go back to the bank, whatever. I don't worry about that. But the problem, of course, is, is that that loss gets passed on to every single customer and consumer and in increased interest rates and everything else on down the line. So there's no such thing as a victimless Absolutely. crime at all. Jeez, jeez, that, that's insane, Jesse. That really is. Yeah. And so, and, and just kind of on that point as well, another way uh, to monetize these vehicles is through cleaning the titles through lien scams, you know? So there's a whole, there's a whole industry uh, set up around mechanics liens and being able to file fictitious mechanic liens in order to clean these titles. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm sorry. And uh, cause I've never really dealt in, in any type of stolen vehicle trade, but what, what are we talking about there with mechanics liens? I don't really understand that. So, I mean, without, without getting into, yeah, don't walk through how it's details. done. But yeah, no, I, I don't want a tutorial. Um, yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. So basically the idea behind it is that, um, you know, when you go and have work done on your vehicle, that mechanic or that service provider, they, incur a right to place a lien on your vehicle if you okay. fail to pay them, right? And that's there to protect them. Now, the problem is when you have a bad actor that, uh, you know, purports to be a, a legitimate service provider, but in reality, they're just the criminals and they assign a lien on this vehicle for an amount. So let's say if you have a, a $50,000 car and they, on the paperwork, show that they shipped your vehicle up to Washington state mm -hmm. and you weren't there to pick it up. So they had to ship it back to South Florida. Well, that, that transport company now has incurred a cost, let's say of $40,000 in charges. Ah, right? right. So now they can place a lien on that vehicle and they go according to the way the law is written. And if they make all of the notifications they need to eventually at some point, the financial institution who's the lien holder on that vehicle, is going to get this and they're going to be offered to recover that vehicle, but they have to pay up that lien. So of they're going course. to look at this $60,000 vehicle, $50,000 vehicle, see that there's $40,000 in uh, fees. They don't know uh, what the condition of the vehicle actually is. Sure. So when you invest the time to send someone out and look at it, they're really just saying, you know what, forget it. We'll write that one off. Right. Wow. And now you have a clean title. That is crazy. That I mean, I, I'm so <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, that, uh, I, you know, I, I was a fraudster for, as you know, that I was a criminal for years, but, um, that never occurred to me that never, that, that type of lean type fraud like that never occurred to me like that. Yeah. And it, and it seems now that, um, you know, I started to, to kind of comment and comment on it earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, just growing up, you always heard about, you know, auto theft and these auto theft rings and, and I wasn't in law enforcement at that time, but there was certainly, uh, seems as though there was, was quite an industry built around chop shops and, and reventing cars and, and all the like. And then I'll tell you what, when I got into law enforcement, it wasn't really around anymore right. um, because people weren't just punching uh, steering wheels anymore to, to, to steal cars. And it just didn't seem to be that big of an issue. Uh, but I'll tell you the last five, six years or so, we've just seen this resurgence of an industry to move stolen cars, whether it be reventing or whether it be cleaning titles through mechanics cleans or, or other or other ways. There's also uh, 
complete industries around moving those cars, you know, and selling them to other parties. So like, like I'm sure you understand, um, if there's no market, you know, to, to turn something into cold, hard cash, well then there's not going to be a lot of thieves out there going after it. So you're absolutely right. Right. So now (laughs) I think it's a, it's a cycle. It's kind of circular in the fact that because we had the fraud and because all of a sudden you had these cars and they needed a way to monetize them, the criminal market responded by developing these industries and, and they operate just like businesses where, Hey, bring in that car. We're going to do this, this, and that we'll get you a clean title. We're going to take this much of a cut of it. And so now that you have that established channel uh, to bring these fraud cars or stolen cars through, then it just drives more fraud to happen because now the, the conversion into cold hard cash becomes that much easier and it just drives the industry that much further along. No, absolutely. So, and before we move into, into talking specifically about uh, synthetic fraud, on the lean fraud, is it, is it pretty easy? It seems like it would be fairly, fairly easy to, to flag or to, to point out these guys who are committing lean fraud, or am I mistaken about that? Well, no. So there's certainly, um, you know, because with the lean fraud, you have to have a service provider of some sort, right? Okay. That is the, the name on the lean. So we definitely have had cases where, where banks and financial institutions have financial institutions have come to us and said, Hey, you know what? We are getting, we have like six liens where this is the service provider who is filed the lien. Something's funny about this. Sure. Right. So, I mean, there's definitely that aspect of it. Unfortunately, um, in the same breath, you know, it, how hard is it to go and, you know, start up an LLC and say you're, you know, some right. kind of service right. provider. It's not difficult at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's really so, not. It's not difficult exactly. At all. So the, as soon as one is flagged, they can start three more. So it's an right. ever-changing game of, of cat and mouse, as I'm sure you fully understand. Yeah, I, I do. So, so, and let's move over into, you know, synthetic fraud here. And if you want to, if you don't mind, why don't you give a, a definition of synthetic fraud? We'll talk about how it kind of starts, what it looks like today, what it's moving over into, and go from there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess my definition of, of synthetic fraud really is anytime that you're taking either fictitious information and making it look like a, a person, or if you're taking parts of real information and turning them into a fictitious person, the end result being is that you have a entity, we'll call it, that is capable of obtaining credit. And that entity uh, though it looks like a real person or individual, and in fact, doesn't really exist. Or at and least I, not I've got to tell you, that's, that's actually an outstanding definition. I was at, uh, I was at NCFTA in uh, Pittsburgh last year, and we did a, a workshop, a breakout session, whatever you want to call it, on synthetic fraud. A lot of different banks were there. And one of the things that I noticed was that the banks tended to have different definitions as to what synthetic fraud was. It was like no one could really agree on what it was. And one of the things that I noticed that you just said was that none of the banks there mentioned fictitious person. None of them. So it, 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 it kind of gets me that, that you would mention that because that's exactly what I think it is too. I mean, you're, you're, you may be using parts of real PII or completely fictitious PII, but at the, the end result is a completely new entity, that, that fake or fictitious person that you just mentioned. 
Right. And I think, I guess one important distinction to make, and, and we can get into this a little further as far as the, the, uh, some of the obstacles we had to overcome in the prosecution of these cases. But so when we're talking about this, we have the PII in the form of, let's say, social security numbers, mm -hmm. which is a large driver for obviously credit reports. Um, and that is really what this is all about. I mean, the synthetic identities, when it boils down to the very root of it, it's all about getting a credit profile. Right. And that credit profile may have pieces of someone else's real information, but if they are a different, if that real person exists on a different credit profile, for all intents and purposes, that credit profile is, is its own entity. And it really doesn't matter what crossover there is, because as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's just this new fictitious person, regardless of whether or not they're using pieces of other people's information. But one of the issues that created for us when we first started getting into this was, well, who's the victim? If, we, if, if something is completely fictitious and mm -hmm. we don't have someone that can testify and say, yeah, that is my social security number and I did not give that person permission to use it, well, then it's very difficult, or at least it was in the beginning, for us right. to figure out how do we charge on this and who is the victim? So, so today, and we'll use car dealerships because that's what we started talking about. So today you get an individual walking in with... A, as a synthetic person, he, he's got the, or he or she has the driver's license, um, has a credit profile opened, everything else like that. He walks into the dealership with a, as a synthetic character. Who is the victim on that? I, I, certainly the dealership is, the, the, the bank is as well. Who else is, is the victim on that? Right. So in those cases where you have someone walk in, you're going to have ultimately the financial institution who is, who is getting the loan is going to mm -hmm. be the victim. Um, and I think the, the aspect we had to overcome initially was in a, in a court of law, you have to prove that that is a fake person, right? So right. the easy way in, in traditional identity theft was, well, if, I'm, if someone's pretending to be me and I can go there and say, yes, that is my name, that's my date of birth, that's my social security number, and no, that's not me. Um, whereas in the case of a synthetic, now you have to prove a negative. You have to prove that that person doesn't exist which there is, um, there is some obstacles to that, but in every fraud and every one of these cases, um, there is some misrepresentation somewhere which you can prove. And depending on how they create their synthetic ID varies which, which is the aspect you have to go after, right? And right. I think that, um, you know, my definition, you know, for CPN, right? And, and I think CPNs, credit privacy numbers or credit profile numbers. Right. Um, or however you want to refer to them. When I first found those, you know, there were some people in the banking industry when I first looked into it that were talking about synthetic identities, but it didn't exactly fit what I was seeing with the CPNs. And okay. obviously that's what led me to do a lot of research and, and bump into you and, and, you know, start this conversation with you. And, you know, I think it was three or four years ago now at this point. But Yeah. And when we were talking about it and, and, because I know you were one of the first people that, that had ever reached out to me. But when I was, when I started talking about synthetic fraud, I would be at a conference, at a banking conference, at a cybersecurity conference, at an identity conference. It didn't matter. But I would ask the audience how many people in the room had even heard of synthetic fraud. And maybe, maybe one person would raise their hand. That was three to four years ago. And it was, you, like I said, you were one of the first people that, that actually started talking about this. Nowadays, you, you ask the audience, and depending on the room that you're in, you know, you'll get 40, 50% of the people will raise their hand on that. 
Um, you mentioned CPNs, credit privacy, credit profile numbers, and I, I think they're kind of interchangeable as far as that uh, the nomenclature goes there. But is that what you started to see was, was, I guess what I'm getting at, I go on YouTube or I go on Facebook and I research credit profile numbers or credit privacy numbers, CPNs. I researched that and there's a lot of videos, there's tons of videos talking about what they're able to get using a CPN, talking about improving their credit or starting out with a completely new credit profile. And every single one of them, every single one says that they're legal, but they're not. So, so my question is, and I already know the answer. It's kind of a loaded question, but, but you get, I'm sure you get some of these people walking into a dealership that have a CPN. They've watched these videos on YouTube and they don't think they're breaking the law. Right. So, and that, that kind of goes into what I spoke about earlier, some of the, the initial uh, obstacles we had to overcome when we were started investigating these. So I think it's worthwhile to kind of give you the backstory on, on mm -hmm. how I stumbled into this. But it's actually, you know, me and my partner, we're, we're in the office and we get a call from a patrol officer. He's out at a dealership. He calls us up and says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm out here. I got called out to this dealership. They're saying this guy's here trying to get a loan for a vehicle and something isn't adding up. Okay. So of course we ask, well, what's going on? You know, who is this person? He gives us the name and we ask, well, what's, what's the matter with it? Is it his real ID? The officer had already checked him in the database and it was this person's true ID. So there was no fake name. There was no fake date of birth. Sure. Uh, so at that point we're wondering, you know, how, how was this fraud? Um, and then we discover that the credit profile or the credit report rather that was pooled in order to justify the loan had a different social security number on it than what ah. we were able to verify this person as having. So of course my initial thought was, you know, how, how is that possible? And the first thing I think is, well, what are the chances that this individual found somebody else with his name and his date of birth with a social security number and he's stealing that person's identity, right? Sure. I mean, that I mean was, it could happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's where I was at at that point. I'm like, what are the chances of that? But that's the only way I could think of that this could happen because surely uh, the, the credit bureaus are not going to have false information in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was how naive I was at the time. Um, so we go out to the scene and, you know, we talk to him and sure enough, we we see his, we find his real social security number, you know, and, and fortunately in law enforcement, we have the ability to, to do those things, which right. uh, is more difficult in the private sector, but we don't know exactly what happened. Um, we know something fraudulent is going on though. So we bring him back to the, the police station. We sit him down in the interview room and start to talk to him. So, so, so let, let me ask you, so <laughs> what, what did you tell him? Did you tell him, you know, hey, man, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but you're doing something. Come on downtown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was something like that, you know. Um, so we get him in there in, in the interview room and, and me and my partner sit down and start to discuss this with him and say, listen, uh, we know you're, you're doing identity theft, you right. know, and kind of kind of uh, bluffing a bit, you know, acting like we knew, knew what was going on. We really <laughs> didn't. Um, and so after we pressure him a little bit and, and tell him, you know, hey, listen, you know, identity theft's a serious crime and we're going to get to the bottom of this. 
Well, he finally comes out and says, hey, listen, it's not identity theft. That's just my CPN. Ah. Uh, so then my partner and I kind of look at each other and, uh, you know, kind of both inquisitively, like, uh, you know, I don't want to admit that I don't know what a CPN <laughs> is. So, so you run to Google really quickly. Right, exactly. <laughs> we, we excuse ourselves from the room and kind of walk out the door and say, what in the hell is a CPN? Uh, you know, I'm thinking, I know what an EIN is, right? I mean, is, he right. Say, is, he, is this like a business uh, number? Or what is he talking about? So sure enough, you know, we go hit the best resource for any investigator <laughs> that has ever been around uh, in the history of the world, which is Google. <laughs> and, uh, and we spent about a half an hour Googling, watching YouTube videos. Watching all the videos, of course. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we go back in and, and start discussing his CPN, and, and he proceeds really to give us um, about an hour and a half long lesson on the manufacture of CPNs and, and how he uses them. And in his particular case, he was. Oh, wow, that's outstanding. Yeah, in his particular case, he was, uh, you know, buying a, a recreational vehicle, which uh, he was going to rent out for other people to use. And, okay. You know, and he. he gave that same line about how well, I thought it was legal. They told me it was legal. And, you know, that caused some problems when it came time to prosecute because, you know, the, uh, the crime requires, you know, you have some level of, of intent. Sure. And we've since, we've since, you know, kind of figured that out. Um, when I, when I spoke earlier, I said, you know, there's always going to be some misrepresentation, right? right. So in this case, I think it's important to kind of point out in this case, he was using his real name, his real date of birth and his real driver's license. Gotcha. Right. Um, the only difference was that he had cultivated another credit profile with that was not connected to his real credit profile. Which that is the intent right there. He knew he was circumventing the rules, the law and creates the entire new credit profile so that no one knows about the older profile. The fraud happens well, right, right there. And so, okay. and there's a, and exactly. And there's a couple things to, to note. So in these cases, when I, when I say there's always going to be some misrepresentation. So in this case, obviously his fake person doesn't have a job, right? But in the application, they know to fill out that they work at a, a, you know, they give up a, an employer and they say a salary that they're making, right? Because sure. they want to qualify for the loan. So that's almost always going to be a lie and a misrepresentation because they're going to say they work for a company that either doesn't exist or that is a fraudulent company. Of course. And they're going to say they make, you know, $200,000 for uh, sitting around at their house or something. Um, so there's a misrepresentation right there. So really where the crime happens when we discussed earlier, who's the victim? One of the um, one of the things that obviously it's I'm in the state of Florida, so we have to go by state of Florida laws. But there is, um, I'm sure, similar laws across the country mm -hmm. where when you're dealing with obtaining a loan, um, the bank, if you if you give any material misrepresentation or omission, which influences the decision of that lender to provide you and extend you credit or a loan then that is fraud in and of itself. Right. So at the point that you are creating and manufacturing a fake credit profile, one, there's an omission. There's an omission of your true credit. So if I have a 450 credit score, 
I think that's something a lender would want to know if they're going to give me a loan. They, they may want to know that. <laughs> yeah. So that's your material omission, right? And then right. the misrepresentation is going to be the employment. If I say I, if I, say I work, you know, and I make 200000 a year, 100000 a year, and I don't really do it, well, that's my misrepresentation. So at that point, that's when the fraud has occurred. Sure. And, and just, just to kind of feed into that, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, and again, you know, we've got these videos on YouTube, on Facebook, we've got companies that offer credit repair services and they all say that CPNs are legal. They're adamant about saying that. Uh, one of the things that I found is a lot of the times these CPNs are nothing more than children's social security numbers that have been purchased off the dark web or got from one of these breaches or something like that. Um, it, it's, it's interesting that, so when I purchased a vehicle, I didn't have the greatest credit score in the world. And they asked me to bring in bank statements. Now, they didn't verify those bank statements at all. They just wanted the bank statements. So it, it seems to me that for someone that's committing synthetic fraud, as you said, it's, it's if you say that you've got a job someplace, you, I mean, it's easy enough to set up an LLC if you need to. So it's easy enough to, to say you've got a job at some fictitious company. It's easy enough to come in with pay stubs or, or, or some sort of forged bank statements submit those to the dealership. Of course, the dealership, they're going to find you some sort of subprime credit at a higher interest rate, but you're not really paying for the vehicle anyway. So what does that matter? Right. Absolutely. And, and on your point about the uh, bank statements, that was something I had kind of scribbled here that as far as the misrepresentations go mm -hmm. as well, that's something we see every time, not so much with the uh, vehicles, but you're also seeing these extend into business credit lines and in those business credit lines, uh, the business, a lot of these business um, loan providers, short-term loan providers, all they require is that you're in business for over a year and that you have X amount of revenues. Well, Jeez. if you if you look up what a shelf company is, you can exactly. go online, buy a shelf company, you get the history you need to get the loan, and then there is an entire industry of people that you can just go online and order up bank statements um, you can tell them what you want your revenues to be. You can tell them where you want your purchases to be. You can tell them, you, you name it. And these people, and I've ordered them, uh, you can't discern them from the real bank statements. I mean, they're, they're, they're just too good, right. um, which kind of uh, leads me to a selfless plug. You know, uh, another thing I'm involved with is a company called Vigilant Eye, uh, which actually- Vigilant Eye. Vigilant Eye. Okay. So, and we're actually uh, developing uh, a way to- electronically verify bank statements before, before these lenders go out. You know, actually that's beautiful. So, and I really like that. So, so vigilant eyes, is it just going to be bank statements? Or are we looking at, at other types of documents as well? Uh, no. So actually the company, what it is, is so we make a direct connection to every bank in the U S we have a, a direct feed mm. where we can pull data straight from them. So it cannot be, um, cannot be manufactured or it can't be altered. Um, really it's uh, involves a lot of analytics and, and it's, really twofold. It's for sure. small business owners to keep an eye on their finances because we want run a, a number of analytics on the transactions occurring within the account to let them know if their bookkeeper or their office manager may be stealing from them. Um, we also have a platform for community organizations such as homeowners associations and condo associations in order to provide that same level of transparency and oversight to all of those members. But in continuing with that fraud prevention and detection theme, um, 
the next step is we've we're working on this platform now for lenders to do the same thing so it pulls the bank uh makes the bank connection and so when somebody goes to get a loan they get our report the lender gets our report says yes this person with this social security number has an account here and for the last three months every month they've had x amount of deposits and you know x amount of that's beautiful so that, that way really is. It's absolutely verify, beautiful. You know, and right. verify that stuff because it's it's all too easy for them to fake it. And um, kind of just to make one other distinction, we talked about my first case with the CPN where uh, this individual was using his real name and his real date of birth. Uh, and when you do that, the misrepresentation has to be uh, your real credit history and your job, right? right. So there's the misrepresentation. Okay. I think think it's important to note and, and um, that there is those that that was the first way we saw CPNs and that was really marketed toward uh, low-income communities uh, communities that are not very financially educated and really you you kind of developed three different kinds of of fraudsters you know you had the career fraudsters who realized that they could use this mm-hmm. in order to make money you kind of had the the hobby fraudster who said, you know what, I want, I'd love to drive around in a nice Mercedes. So I know this is wrong, um, but I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to drive this Mercedes around for a few months until right. I run out of money to pay for it. And then, oh, well. And then really the other person you have is you kind of have the unwitting fraudster, right? You have this person that was, that was sold hook, line and sinker from some charlatan that said, Hey, I know you have had a, a rough past. I know that your credit is is awful and it makes your life much more difficult. I'm gonna, I'm here to give you a second chance at life. Right. Pay me pay me a thousand dollars and I'm gonna set you up so you don't have to worry about this anymore. And you have those people that go in and legitimately are trying to live on their new social security number in their mind. Um, but in the meanwhile, you know, they're committing fraud as well. Sure. So, so let me, and I really appreciate you breaking that down into those three groups because I just been talking about two groups, the, the, the unwitting fraudsters, and then the people who I was more associated with uh, of the, the more skilled experienced, you know, career fraudster. And what I noticed was from my point of view, it was kind of like the, the career fraudsters, the online people, they started to see CPNs. They saw the potential of that co-opted it and made it more efficient and said, Hey, we can make a lot of money on this. Absolutely. Um, I guess my big question on that is, you know, so, so law enforcement starts to see this and I'm sure that your, your example on how you started to see it is not just unique to you. It happens across the board, across many States like this. So how do, of course the laws were not, you had to figure out how to charge where the fraud was, everything else like this. Today, when we're looking at synthetics, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that most of these people are serving some prison time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult to say. On the low end, if you get, if you get one guy that goes out and, and gets a car on it, you know, mm-hmm. he's not going to do a whole lot of time at, at this okay. point. You know, it's these organized fraudsters. They're the ones that are, that are really going. And those are the ones that catch the eye of, of federal authorities. And they're able to build very large cases. Um, but you know, for the amount of, uh, of, of just occurrences that this is going on, it's a very small drop in the bucket because there's only so many federal agencies that are able to devote the time and, and resources right. to try and investigate this. So really what I think 
it's incumbent upon local law enforcement to understand this. And I've been very vocal, especially in the law enforcement community and speaking with other law enforcement agencies on understanding that this is a crime because the, the, the resounding answer when a finance company goes to a local law enforcement and, and tells them that someone has uh, failed to deliver on a, a loan is going to be, well, I'm sorry, that's a civil complaint. And that's, ah. that's really, it's because they don't really understand what exactly is going on. And it's very hard to articulate where exactly that fraud occurred. Sure. And, you know, just law enforcement being overburdened as it is, it's, you know, they're not taking the time to really understand it. And, and I think that's where the education comes in. I would agree. And I'm, I'm sure you talk about this on your YouTube channel as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that's what the whole purpose of the YouTube channel is to bring all of these, all of these experiences and, and try to educate, you know, so that people can learn from my mistakes, you know, and the YouTube channel isn't about my wins, right? I mean, sure. it's about me looking stupid sometimes and not knowing <laughs> what was going on. And hopefully people can learn from my mistakes. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's not, no one is perfect. No investigation is, is, well, I guess there are some perfect investigations. <laughs> I mean, if you've really got the guy, you've got the guy. <laughs> so, but I, again, I cannot recommend that YouTube channel enough. Uh, one of the things that, I, that I'd like to kind of touch on here, I was talking to Ralph Gagliardi at the Denver Sheriff's Office, and I went in and given a presentation for, for law enforcement there. We were talking about synthetic fraud, and over the phone, Ralph had mentioned, because historically what I had been seeing was people using this credit piggybacking technique to build these credit profiles. They'll add and authorize users onto credit cards, and that'll pump up the credit score to, to enough where they can start getting credit on the synthetic. But Ralph had mentioned that now we're seeing these synthetic fraudsters using real companies, either through business identity theft or shelf corporations or what have you. So they get, they get a real company that reports directly to the credit bureau on the synthetic accounts. Are you, are you seeing that type of thing as well or not? So, so absolutely. So what you're talking about is data furnishers for, for right. uh, any of the credit bureaus. And um, when you say legitimate companies, I think that you have to use that term extremely loosely. Uh, I would agree. Is that, <laughs> so what we're seeing is is no different than when how we discussed earlier. You have these companies that are formed in order to, um, you know, do mechanics liens, right? So they create, in essence, what what may be considered a legitimate company, except for the fact that they don't do any legitimate business. Right. Um, so you're having the same thing with data furnishers. And I won't tell you which uh, credit bureau it was with. I, I, um, <laughs> well, you see, Jesse, that's the difference there. I, I'm that SOB that would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll keep that to myself for right now. But, you know, I was curious because I saw this and I said, well, let me figure out how I can become a data furnisher. Right. Right. You know, I had my, my LLC, so I called and uh, inquired about it. And what I was told was that, you know, at first they asked me, do I have at least 500 people I can report on? Sure. And I said, well, no, not right now. Um, hopefully we'll get there. Well, okay. Well, that's what they, that's what, you know, you kind of, you got to have 500 people to report. So I kind of left it alone and I, I wasn't going to pursue it very much. Well, right. about two weeks later, I get a call back from them and they're trying to make a sale. I mean, that's oh, what geez. it is. Their job 
their job is to sell, you know, these companies and get data because what are these data? I mean, these companies sell data. So right. if, they, if I can report data to them, it, they can monetize that data. So I'm sitting there, you said that I, I'm sitting there going, okay, I would need to create 500 accounts. How long would that take me to create 500? And then all of a sudden you get another phone call saying, well, <laughs> yeah. So the, the phone call was, Hey, listen, if we, we put you through on this, um, you're going to get a call from uh, our, you know, I don't know what they called it. Their uh, onboarding team, or maybe sure. they have some level of, of due diligence they do. And I was told they're going to ask you if you have 500 people um, that you can report on. They're not really going to check on it. They just oh, want to, they just want to know that you have 500 people. To oh, geez. On. Oh, geez. So, so, I mean, you know, I didn't go through with it because I just, it was really just a curiosity of mine, but right. Uh, we've seen that with these companies that are data furnishers. And once you have a data furnisher, um, they, they have been big in, um, you know, once we make an arrest on somebody, we'll find somebody that that's involved in this. And if we look at their, you know, we have uh, databases, we can see where they've been reported as uh, or wherever they have reported as being their places of employment. And we see ABC funding corp, you know, right. XYZ lenders. So what they're doing is they're creating these fictitious entities that look like lending entities. Sure. They're becoming data furnishers. And now they can, they can just jump the whole system and furnish their own data um, and get it into the credit bureaus. Oh, and, and then you've got of, the, that it, it's, you know, we, I've been talking a lot on, um, on broadcast about this, this concept of being siloed. So, you know, you've got, uh, as far as fraud goes, you've got the consumer, you've got the financial institution, you've got the actual merchant that, that gives the product service cash. Um, so, and they're kind of siloed from each other. So, you know, none of them communicate with each other. None of them know exactly what's going on, but it strikes me. That's what you're talking about with this, this credit bureau as well. You've got the sales team. The sales team is kind of siloed. They're interested in making the sale, getting the, 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 the commission, everything else that's there. Then you've got the actual part of the, 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 the bureau that gives, you know, that, that gives the credit furnishing account, and they're not really communicating with each other. They're, they're siloed off from each other, except the sales team knows that the other division is not checking to see if you've got 500 accounts to report. Right. You know, and, and to, to kind of just to comment on that, I think there's one thing um, when you talk about siloing of data uh, mm-hmm. that especially with CPNs that I think we, you know, is, we have to address is, is the perception just as I, when I first started this thing um, and, and stumbled into this, my assumption that the credit bureau would not have fictitious data was based on the fact that I believed it to be extremely uh, elementary that a credit bureau when they get a new credit profile would say oh this is jesse gossman with this date of birth and this social security number hey let's ask the social security administration if this is accurate oh the social security administration told us that yes jesse gossman with this date of birth and this social security number is a real person that was my assumption Right. Little did I know at that time, just based on ignorance, is that the Social Security Administration does not share that information with anybody, at least not as of now. Right. Um, and so that that is where the problem existed, is that you can create anything by by just by applying for the loan, 
you've now created a credit profile number and now you have to game the system using authorized user lines like you already discussed in order to build that credit. Sure. But there is no check and balance because they're siloed information. Um, and I think for those that aren't aware uh, in the financial industry, it is important to note that there is, you know, finally a, uh, uh, a program that's, that's being developed. It's the electronic consent based um, authorization of uh, for it authorizes the social security administration to share that information with a financial institution. I believe it goes into effect June 20th, but it's, it's very limited rollout, but I think it's going to be huge to reduce the level of uh, CPNs that are out there. No, I would agree. I think it, uh, I think it absolutely kills the use of children's identities or social security numbers. I think it kills the use of fabricated social security numbers. My question is, are we going to see, you know, the fraudsters move over to I-10s, um, use more prisoner right. IDs, things like that? So, right. So I was just about to comment on that. So the I-10s, so really you have to kind of look at the real structure underneath um, how all of these financial systems talk to each other and work with each other. So a bank, when you go to a bank uh, and they are verifying you using your social security number, now, let's say that they are, they are implementing um, this new system uh, that the Social Security Administration is going to provide. They can now look at your name and that Social Security number and say that, okay, this is a legit person. Well, many banks permit the use of ITINs in order to uh, allow the opening of accounts or, or uh, credit. Now, an ITIN, for those that don't know, there is a very specific set of people that are authorized to get an I-10. Um, and there are people that are in the country legally and that uh, do not, are not eligible for a social security number. And that, um, I think that list is really, really small. And, it, and I think it involves family members of diplomats. And I'm sure there's some other ones out there. I'm not an expert on that, but. No, you're right. And just so the audience knows, an I-10 is an individual tax identification number. Right. So where I think we have to look at, at the structure of this is that a bank, if a bank does allow the use of an I-10, they have no ability to verify that because the Social Security Administration administers the Social Security numbers and the IRS administers the I-10s. So this new program that's going into effect will only verify the Social Security number. It will not verify the I-10. So I think what initially you're going to see is that a bank may have had a hundred accounts opened last year in ITINs. Sure. And once this goes into effect, they're going to have 10,000 accounts where people are claiming that they're ITINs and they're going to have to, it, it's a much better problem to have because they can isolate it and try to verify it uh, through other sources. Right. Um, but I think you will see, you will see that. No, I, th I think you're, I think you're right. And you know, my experience has been when, when a fraud tool or a technique or regulation or whatever comes up and stops a certain... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
an aspect of fraud. Those guys that are committing that aspect, they're not going to go down and start flipping burgers at McDonald's. They're just going to find another, another way to commit that type of fraud is <laughs> what's going to happen. So, and I, I know you have to leave here in a minute, but uh, we've talked about the problem. We, we've, <laughs> we've worried audible bill dealers. We've worried financial institutions. We've probably worried consumers as well. So <laughs> what would you say or what advice would you give consumers, financial institutions, and finally, let's, let's talk about car dealerships. What would you give these people as far as what they need to do to look for and counter synthetic fraud? Yeah. So um, speaking directly to the, the auto industry out there, I think it's important to really look at the other information you have rather than just the credit report, right? Because there's a lot of lenders out there that are, are just, you know, FICO lenders. They look at the FICO score and okay, we'll, we'll approve that loan. I think you need to do a little bit of a deeper dive. And I can't tell you, I mean, the number of cases we've had where there are just obvious, um, obvious clues that this, that it was bogus. So prime example, um, you know, we touched on this earlier about there being, there always has to be a misrepresentation. So in the case where you're using a CPN with your real name and, and all your real information, you have a real ID. So there's other, you know, you have to misrepresent other things. What we've seen the CPNs go or where we've seen it go is now they are using uh, fictitious names. They're using, not only are they using completely fabricated names, <clears throat> but they're also using the uh, name of someone else. And what you see in that is now you now it requires you to have a fake ID, right? right. So that that's the new misrepresentation because now that you've created a fake person, you need a fake ID and technology being what it is, they are getting very good at doing fake IDs, but you like anything, we always catch the dumb criminals, right? Of course. We catch the really smart ones. Um, but <laughs> but when you do, man, <laughs> do they get the time? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, um, you know, look at those driver's licenses. Every, every state has uh, a numbering convention to their number. Uh, you know, and so I've just seen blatantly obvious ones where, you know, the, the, the digit in the, the, the ID that's supposed to be the year of the date of birth doesn't match what the year of the date of birth is that's shown on there. Sure. Um, you know, th there's a number of uh, different variations in formats and, and just things like that. You can look at that ID. Secondly, um, the all of these data furnishing companies, these um, you know, Lexus Nexus, TLO, IDI Core, all of these these data companies that provide uh, verification information, they're kind of a double-edged sword, right? So you can use those tools to look for uh, information on your potential client, but just know that there will be fraudulent information included in those. One thing, one, one way we're able to identify CPNs is if someone, if I search a, just the social security number that is provided and I get one file back in one of those uh, data companies, mm -hmm. that doesn't tell me a whole lot, right? It tells me that that could be the fictitious one because they will get all that fictitious information in there. Sure. However, if I do a search and I leave out that social security number and I just do a search for the name and the date of birth of the person that is there, I may find that they have six different social security numbers assigned to them because what happens is they go out and they, they, they invest in a really, really good fake ID, right? right? Um, and they use that fake ID to cultivate 
10 different CPNs. So now when I do that search, if I had searched it only by that CPN number, it would have looked like a real ID. But now I do it by the name, date of birth, and potentially the city or the name and city of where that person's located. Right. Now I end up with 10 social security numbers all assigned to that same identity. So, That's interesting you said that because when I was a credit card thief, I mean, we would use one ID for, for you know 10 different cards, but you're seeing that, that one ID used for 10 different credit profiles. That's, that's really interesting. Right. So, I mean, that's a, that's a good way to catch it. You know, if you see that, there's no reason why one person with one name and in one city should have 10 different social security numbers associated with them. So that's sure. a, they call that a clue. So <laughs> we call that in the business, a clue. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it's just part of doing that, that due diligence. The, the other, the other issue we've seen a lot, especially with the, the vehicles is, you know, look at the address uh, of the person where they say they work. Um, and Google searches, I mean, Google searches, I'm telling you, will, will do a world of good. Sure. Someone gives a name, you know, who doesn't have some kind of presence online at this point? So you, you throw quotations around somebody's name that's applying for a loan. Um, given if their name is, you know, Carlos Gonzalez, you're going to have an issue. But, um, you know, if it's something that's not that uh, prevalent, then hopefully you find something, either you find the real identity of the person or you find nothing. Um, you, know, you just never know where that, where that's sure. going to lead you. And I know the, especially in the auto industry, the, the problem, and, and I'm sure they're all kind of cursing me right now because you know, that's, that's when you know something's bad and how to find it. Their problem really is to sift through the, the hundred thousand good ones and find the bad ones out of those. And, and as far as automating those systems, that's a bigger that's a bigger problem. And it really, it, just from my, my time doing consulting with some of these um, auto in, uh, lenders, everybody's system is different. They have access to different information. Um, so that's on a case by case basis as far as developing automated tools and how to identify these people. But those are some of the things they need to take into consideration. No, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, Jesse Gossman, I got to tell you, you are amazing. <laughs> this, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you. If, if the audience, and here's the thing, audience, I'm going to tell you now, you need to know about synthetic identity fraud. It's, it's the fastest growing form of financial fraud on the planet. If you don't know about it, there's one person you need to talk to about it. His name is Jesse Gossman. Jesse, how can people who are listening today contact you? Yeah, you can uh, email me at jgossman at bottomlinefraud.com or you can contact me directly, my phone number, 954-662-6130. I'm always interested to hear from people um, and their experiences and I really do have a passion for this and even if it's just a call to, to share a story with me or, or ask for some some free advice, I'm here, you know, because I'm, I'm interested in it and I, and I try to keep abreast of everything that's going on can also catch me at the fraud detective on YouTube and stay uh, abreast of the next fraud trend. I, I accidentally stumble into. <laughs> well, you know, I got to say you, you say accidentally, but the, the experience that you've got, I don't think there's an accident in your bones. <laughs> I think that, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you may have happened upon that, but you knew immediately something was going on and that comes with the, the years of experience, your mindset, everything else. And I got to tell you, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. 
I am so glad that I am a legal guy because I would have been scared to death to come across you when I was a criminal. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, thank you so much for coming on Anglerfish. Thanks a lot, Brett. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Anglerfish Podcast. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H dot com. Other than saying hello, feel free to email questions, comments, concerns, or even show suggestions. I respond to every single email I get. And please, tell your friends about us. Rate and review Anglerfish wherever you can. As Anglerfish continues to navigate the dark waters of our online lives, remember, stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.